This is Ozarks at Large. With me on the phone from his Fort Smith office is Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. No, it's not Friday. It's Thursday, but because of our scheduling, we did it a day. We're talking a day early this week. Is it because of the weather? The weather's so warm, you just had to get out in it since you like it to be 100 degrees? You know, I do like it warm, but I don't like it warm when there's this cold front that's going to smash into it Slam and make yeah, things again. weird. Yeah. Um, well, okay, let's talk about um, taxes and a group that is forming to oppose a, a tax. And not just a tax, but a tax extension. Right, right, tax extension. Now, the Fort Smith Board of Directors back uh, in November, November 16th, uh, voted to approve two sales tax extensions. One is a quarter percent um, sales tax that will extend from September of this year to September of 2042. It's a 20-year extension, unlike the 10-year extension that they normally do. That'll support fire department and the parks department. That tax generated just a little under $6 million, uh, in 2020. The second tax is uh, three-quarters of a percent sales tax that will begin in January 2022 and go to December uh, 2033. It's essentially a 10-year extension. Uh, 83% of that is going to go uh, – 83.3% of that will go to the federal consent decree work, which we've talked about fixing the city sewer system. Uh, and 16.7% will go to the city's police department. And that tax generated about $17 million. In 2022, overall, if you figure this out and add in some very conservative growth, it's about a $300 million tax package. Now, what the city board, I think we've talked about the city board did this in a way that I think and enforcement attorney Joey McCutcheon thinks is illegal because we think it violated the uh, FOI, the Freedom of Information Act Open Provision Law. And also, they didn't seek any public input. It's just like all of a sudden, bam, here's some tax options. Boom, here we go. Which um, shows both arrogance and ignorance, I think, on part of the city. And I've addressed that in an editorial, so I'm not speaking out of school, I guess. But but this group, Citizens Against Unfair Taxes, formed at a press conference this Tuesday, essentially said, uh, we're not against taxes. But the city needs to be transparent. city needs to get public input. Um, and this vote, which the vote is scheduled for February 8th, by the way, um, we encourage uh, citizens to vote this down to uh, then maybe encourage the city board to do something different. Now, interestingly enough, Kyle, we something we're working on in the story, in fact, right now, is there's been a, a, a call for a city study session next week, next Monday, with uh, we think this tax extension on on the discussion. So who knows? It may be that some of the board members have said, "Oh gosh, yeah, we might have stepped out a little too soon. Let's let's reconsider this." Um, I'll be very surprised if the city board backs down. They've had a tendency to dig in, no matter how. Uh, well, let's just say they've had a tendency to be very obstinate. So I expect the same. So. Um, these are very critical taxes to the city's future. At some point, they need the, these tax extensions are needed. Uh, but I don't think it would be the end of the world if the voters did vote it down February and forced the city to readjust and come back with a better plan. This is a lot of um, confusion and uncertainty for a vote that's about 50 days away. 
Yes. Yeah. And so I think that's the problem. I, I think if you were writing a book on public relations and how to best uh, communicate with uh, a voting block on how to pass $300 million in tax extensions, this would be the example A of how not to handle it. So um, anyway, we'll again, we'll see how the city adjusts. Uh, I suspect um, that you're going to have a lot of people who normally are very supportive of the city, very supportive of tax increases that go toward defined projects. I think you're going to uh, see more of those folks say, you know what, we are going to send a message and vote no, but uh, if we'll know February 8th unless it's pulled. All right. Haas all began. It's a, it's, it's a charter school that began in Fayetteville. Now there's a campus in Bentonville, one in Springdale, one in Rogers. Moving west. Yeah, moving uh, yeah, moving on down the hill. Um, and this is a story I'm glad we were uh, able to break uh, last week. Been sitting on it for over a year. It's a project that's been in the making. It's one of those things you learn about, but then you can't talk about because you don't want to screw it up. But um, Haas Hall is uh, they've they're, they've sought a uh, uh, approval from the Arkansas Department of Education to be, to have this campus in Fort Smith to be a 500 student uh, maximum capacity, and it would be on the fourth floor. Uh, of what was used to be the former Golden Living Building. And I think your listeners remember Arkansas Colleges of Health Education bought that um, late last year for their health and wellness center, which they're investing in. So uh, ACHE is going to invest a little over $6 million in that. Uh, and if all the approvals go well and construction goes well and there are several other factors, they could be uh, the Haas Hall could have their school open. It'd be 7th through 12th initially, uh, but that would open in the fall of 2023. So it'd be, um, I think your listeners also know it's a, a charter school. It's widely known for, for what's considered advanced curriculum, a college prep type high school. So I think um, uh, I, I think they'll find a very good uh, good market in Fort Smith. I know the future school of Fort Smith is a good alternative to the public schools, and this will be even another um, uh, alternative. And I, I'll be I'll be surprised if they don't reach that maximum capacity of 500 very soon. Finally, the Riverfront Drive sports fields, they feature, I think, certainly soccer. There may be baseball and softball there as well. It looks like there's a very good chance, and I love this, that these parks will be named after an artist. You, you see parks named after statespeople and military figures. I love that John Bell Jr., it, appear, it appears, will be the namesake of this uh, park. Yeah, look, I share your enthusiasm. John Bell had a uh, great opportunity to, to know Mr. Bell. Very iconic artist. I think, you know, people remember he had a, a palsy, a muscle palsy, confined to a wheelchair most of his life, had limited use of his arms and hands, yet was able to, and I watched him work and how he would use his mouth um, and part of his hands to draw these very detailed uh, images of historic, uh, iconic structures. Some no longer exist all around Arkansas. You know, he was commissioned uh, to do um, Subiaco Academy. He's done these projects all over Fort Smith, uh, Northwest Arkansas. I think he, the old Washington County Courthouse. Um, he even uh, early many years ago, decades ago, 
was commissioned to do uh, uh, paint an image of Roy Acuff on a special fiddle that was presented to Mr. Acuff and is now in the Country Music Hall of Fame. So, um, very iconic uh, artist. And yes, it, he died in, in November 2013, unfortunately. But uh, as you said, it's great to have a, a park. And this is a growing park. It's on 51 acres. Right now, it's just soccer fields. They're working on this large, inclusive playground concept. Or they, I think at some point, they've looked at softball and baseball fields. It, it will grow. There's plenty of growth there. And um, it'll be great to have his name out there. I hope also the Fort Smith Parks and Rec Commission has some kind of literature, something out there, some plaque or something that kind of explains why uh, John Bell is worthy of this uh, of this naming. And if you want to see some of the work, Fort Smith Regional Art Museum. Right. Yes. Yeah, and and uh, I think I know that the uh, Mullins Library at yep. uh, the University of Arkansas at one, one time had some of his works. I don't know if they still have it there, but uh, they did at one time. All right. Well, Michael, you and I will not talk for a couple of weeks. We'll get to back together um, in early January. Happiest of holidays and a most prosperous, happy 2022 for you. Well, you're, I appreciate it. You as well. It's been a great year. And so, yeah, we'll get this, get the rest of this year behind us and, and start again in 20, gosh, 2022. That doesn't even sound right, but yep. Yeah. All right. Um, Thanks, and uh, you can read all about what we've talked about and more at talkbusiness.net. Talk to you in a couple of weeks, Michael. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Theater Squared presents magic and holiday cheer with A Christmas Carol on stage at the Fayetteville Public Library. Three spirits come to visit Ebenezer Scrooge and take him on a fantastic journey through past, present, and future for all ages. On stage and streaming through December 26th, 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets and information. This is Ozarks at Large. In November, the Reflections Music Series facilitated a conversation with three distinguished guests about the social impact of the arts in peacebuilding, reconciliation, and healing. The third episode of the Reflections podcast is a continuation of that conversation. In the first part of this episode, we hear from Luis Fernando Restrepo, university professor and director of the Comparative Literature and Cultural Studies Program at the University of Arkansas and member of the Scholars at Risk Committee. Anna Baer, video choreographer and professor of dance at Texas State University, and Cesar Lopez, musician, composer, activist, UN Nonviolence Messenger and Amnesty International Emissary of Consciousness and creator of Escopatara. In the conversation, Cesar is heard through interpreter Erica Almanara. Also in the conversation is Dr. Leo Uribe, Associate Chair at the University of Arkansas Department of Music, and Lee Wood, General Manager of KUAF. The conversation is led by Dr. Almanara from the Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, and Rogelio Garcia Contreras from Sam M. Walton College of Business and Director of Social Innovation at Arkansas Global Changemakers. This podcast episode begins with a call to action from Dr. Leo Uribe, reminding us of the mission of the Reflections Music Series to reflect, grow, change, and teach. As we move into the actual uh, interview and conversation with our uh, guest, I want to invite everybody uh, to do what we do in Reflections. We reflect, we learn, we grow, we change, and then we go out and teach. Thank you. 
I'm interested yesterday in our panel, we had a panel yesterday, we didn't talk about the Scopetarra project. And I think this is a good space for you to tell us about that uh, very you know, life-changing event in your life and how it has opened doors for you and, and given you visibility. Perfecto. Eh, nosotros creamos, o yo creé en Bogotá, una, un ejercicio que llamamos el Batallón Artístico de Reacción Inmediata. So, in the year of 2000, I created this exercise that was called kind of Batallón Artístico de Reacción Inmediata or Artistic group of immediate reaction where a group of artists would go to the areas where violent acts were committed. So the idea was to go there like really fast in order to be with the people who had suffered, who had witnessed um, or experienced uh, violent actions, right? So with this, I dream about creating kind of like um, an station um, where artists could live and have a car and just, you know, go immediately to help people uh, where we were needed because violent acts were, were happening. So what we did instead was um, to connect different artists through the phone and tell each other about, you know, a case or a situation where violence just had happened. We would listen to this uh, at the radio or at the news, no? So we will go really fast um, to be with the people that had experienced these violent acts. Este grupo estuvo funcionando desde el año 2000 hasta el año 2004. Y en el año 2003 estalla un carro bomba en el This club, group en el club operated uh, from 2000 until 2004 and then in 2003, something happened. There was this car bomb that exploded next to a club, the Nogal Club. And I went to this space with other musicians with the intention to play music in the remains of the bomb explosion. But the problem was that when we got there, uh, members of the Red Cross, of the police, of the military blocked the area and we couldn't get inside, you know, the remains. Um, but I tried, I tried to, to get inside and a soldier that was holding a gun, a rifle, um, was like not letting me get inside and with his gun, he break my guitar so then this was kind of like a happening right like an image that presented to me and got inspired to create the escopetarras because there we were both of us each one of us with our own tools our own instrument he had a gun i had a guitar that had been broken by uh this gun and that's how I got uh, inspired to create the Escopetarras. So what happened is like, I went to different military installations 
to request guns, uh, rifles, and especially the ones called AK-47, and that evolved in that people from the military, soldiers, live human beings who want to stop war, who don't want to participate in the creation of violence through war anymore, in a voluntarily way, give their, their guns uh, so I can transform them, right? So this has um, created the Scopetarra, which is a symbol, no, a symbol of transformation from violent to art to peace. And I have um, taken these Scopetarras to different um, organizations in Berlin, in Paris, in Vienna, no, uh, and different cultural centers in order to present them as a symbol of transformation from violence to peace. Listeners, and just to give a little context, and maybe Luis Fernando can help me a little bit with this. In Colombia, gun possession is not legal. Mm -hmm. uh, only military people and police, and then, uh, you know, uh, those guns in the hands of people were uh, many times uh, is, uh, you know, the, the traffic of guns, and there is a bigger context to this. So I wanted to point that out. Uh, you cannot go to the closest grocery store and buy your AK-47. AK also, uh, I want to point out something that it was very uh, um, um, a strong image for me when Cesar was talking about this, and it is how the way you hold the uh, rifle is the same way you hold the guitar. And that was a moment of kind of mirroring each other and for him to have this image that that can be transformed into the instrument he created. Luis? It, it's been uh, more than a 50 years of conflict. We recently had a... Um, peace accord from the main armed groups, not all of them, but uh, as we've seen in other countries in El Salvador and Central America in general, when you've been solving issues with war, it doesn't finish with just signing an agreement. And uh, this um, war that in, in a way was not caused by the United States and other countries uh, in, in the Soviet bloc, uh, the Cold War brought arms, you know, and made Colombia a space of, you know, uh, struggle for, for world uh, dominance, if we might think to do that. The drug wars increased that and brought more um, fire to it. And later, the drug, uh, no, the, the war on terrorism kind of overlapped and, and, and for that, um, Colombia has uh, received quite a lot of uh, guns one way or another for what is Plan Colombia. And uh, that has been a military plan when what we need is more a social development and equity plan. Thank you, Luis. And um, Cesar, thank you for the introduction to the Escopetarra. Uh, we have been very lucky Colombians in the country and from the outside as well to witness your advocacy from many corners. This is just a little snippet of uh, what you have done. 
uh, for for us to represent us and to really put yourself at the forefront of this uh, you know conversation and action uh, to create spaces for uh, peace building. So we'll come back to you later, but I think I would like to go to Anna. And Anna, uh, we didn't have the opportunity yesterday to talk about uh, your film and uh, especially uh, that creation in the context of Juarez. And I would like to, um, if you can, introduce yourself to maybe tell us a little bit more about that situation that uh, we are not all aware of. Yeah, it's um, the piece that you're referring to is called Mujeres de Juarez, and I... Uh, I filmed this and it, it's a piece of uh, screen dance, which is the, the marriage of cinematography and choreography. So it's a, it's a film about dance um, in which the camera is moving along as a third dancer or fourth dancer. It's a trio women and um, I am trying to cope with all this suffering. And my way to coping with it is by making this piece uh, about the femicides in Mexico, which have been happening since the 80s, I want to say, and they have not stopped. So I'm talking about impunity. I'm talking about um, I show three, three lovely dancers struggling, um, not being able to move a lot. And also they have a tape on their uh, mouth and another tape on their breast, so talking about oppression and um, the music uh, made by a uh, composer, Randy Gibson, uh, you can hear voices and it's just really sad to see this occurrence. Um, and and it's um, all of this, of course, has to do with the political and um, with the uh, war on drugs and um, just the amount of corruption that we have in Mexico and um, that, that's what the piece is about. conversation during the panel discussion, the idea of audiences being desensitized to images of violence and actual violent acts came up. And Luis, you shared something that really struck me uh, about how compassion, particularly as a reaction to a moving piece of art, uh, may not be enough. And uh, Cesar kind of um, expanded on it, that distance between the emotion of uh, being moved by a piece of art and the reaction by uh, the person who's viewing the art. Do you have any thoughts on moving beyond compassion uh, and uh, connecting with the audience member to the uh, point where they may be moved to action? As I started, you know, teaching and developing courses on literature and human rights, uh, the, the images of, um, you know, the torture, the disappear, the, all the different uh, violent assaults were very hard to swallow. But at the same time, we were living in a landscape that uh, we received news, you know, 24 seven of all sorts of suffering. So going through different critical readings that helped to reflect on that among them, for me has been very useful. Um, Susan Sontag, uh, who has reflected since the 1970s on war and photography. And she has a question on 
a book that is of essays that is called Regarding the Pain of Others. It really reflects you know, widely on the whole history of photography and war, very inspiring. And she says, you know, when we look at these pictures of other people's suffering, if we're not gonna do anything about it, that's, that's a pornography of looking into enjoying the violence. Um, so what, what would be some sort of response? How do we really understand those images of suffering? And she said, well, compassion could be a possibility, but somehow compassion takes us out of the context and we feel better for them that are suffering out there, sometimes far away. If we think today of the many people that, for example, died in the Colombian conflict, you know, more than 200,000 or the 6 million internally displaced, or what we hear today from the migrants crossing the, um, the, the Mediterranean. So she says, um, compassion is impertinent in a way uh, because it, it just doesn't move uh, enough. We have to see how our own privileges are related to other people's suffering. So we are implicated in it and we have to start a, a more a solidarity response. So I know that I expanded, but my book project right now is what I called and what has been called humanitarian narratives. Humanitarian narratives usually would have a metropolitan audience reading about other people's sufferings. And we have celebrity uh, humanitarian narratives of these artists and everything that are shown, spreading compassion. It, it, it's an admirable way to some extent, but, but, but it, it's a band-aid because it not, does not address structurally the inequities of the global um, world order. And I think that one of the themes that came up for me is, is really the idea of that I am still uh, putting a distinction between the artist and the audience. And that that right there, uh, that distinction should, most, should probably be destroyed. I would love to hear your thoughts on the artistic process. Cesar, you said yesterday uh, it is the continual reflection of yourself and exploration of your own experience and uh, perhaps inviting what, what I am thinking of as an audience member to partake in that experience, the actual reflection and the processing of your own experience and, and the violence uh, may be the transformative uh, action that we're looking for. Sí. Yo, entonces, ayer cuando terminamos el panel... So yesterday when we finished the panel, uh, this scene, this moment came to me and it was something that happened in 2015. Uh, I was with other artists in Barcelona commemorating a massacre that happened 20 years ago in Sarajevo where 8,000 people were killed in one day. So myself and the other artists and people that were there commemorating uh, this death decided to start naming one by one the people that have been murdered that day, right? So we start at 9 a.m. and 
it was 8 p.m. and we could only name 1,700 of the 8,000, right? And then I realized how death goes so fast that although we were trying to symbolically, no, mirror in a way that way of being fast, we couldn't because it was AP, it was 8 p.m. and we couldn't name the 8,000 people that were dead that day. Um, pero lo, lo que sucedió allí durante la jornada es que empezaron a emerger relatos que durante la guerra en Bosnia Another thing that happened, people start telling stories uh, about the war in Bosnia, um, especially artists that perform certain actions. So, for instance, there was this group of painters who had a gallery that remained open through the war. Although the war was happening, there were bombs everywhere. They decided to keep the gallery open. They knew they were not going to sell anything, but they wanted people to have this space as a door where they could go and experience an aesthetic, aesthetic moment and receive peace in the middle of this war. Um, I also remember another story where, you know, these circles that remain where uh, shots or bombs have exploded, they were painted uh, from different colors, yellow and red, and that became uh, the roses of Sarajevo. No, So it was a way of transforming this remains of violence into art, into something beautiful. Y, y como, como, como experiencia muy potente, el, un chelista de nombre Vedran Smailovic I also remember this musician who played a cello uh, that will just go in the mornings and play whole concert in the middle of the ruins of the remains of the bombs. And I also remember that there was this project where intellectuals from different parts of the world were brought to Sarajevo. And among them, there was some somebody that um, Luis Restrepo mentioned that is Susan Santon, no? And this was like an intention uh, to bring these intellectuals to stop the war, to stop the attacks, right? Um, and also um, they tried to recreate this um, work waiting for Godot in a way of expressing, we are waiting for Yunos no? to come and do something to stop uh, the war. And finally, I wanted to mention uh, this experience of a photographer that was there in the middle of the war, right? Telling what was happening, taking picture. And he was there in the middle of the war of the bombs with his camera. And he suddenly saw this family 
mother, father, and children running because they were going to be killed. And these photographers saw an image that could be important in that instant. And they asked the family to stop so he could take the picture of that moment. And sad, sadly, when they stopped to be photographed, a soldier killed one of the children, right? So then I asked myself, along with this photographer, no, was it worth it? Was it worth it to take that picture to document what was happening when a life was lost, when a child was killed? And it made me think about how us artists, in a way, have caused harm and have been complicit of this kind of situations in the name of art. Volver a indignarme esta realidad. Entonces volveré a pararme, volveré a salir a marchar a exigir con el alma encendida. Thank you for listening to the Reflections podcast. The piece of music that we are listening to right now is a composition by Cesar Lopez, and it is being performed by Cesar. It is Hasta que amemos la vida, or in English, When We Learn to Love Life. We also heard Mujeres de Juarez, music from the film that was created by Anna Bear, and we also heard another composition by Cesar, the piano piece, and it is called Icaro. We have an amazing team of friends and colleagues, um, and they bring their unique perspectives and commitment to uh, discuss, which is reflections. Um, our team is formed by Helen Bequé, Rhonda Mains, Catalina Ortega, Eric Truiano, Erika Almenara, Rogelio Garcia Contreras, and you and me. That's right. And thank you again to the Women's Giving Circle for making this podcast possible. And thank you for listening. Please go subscribe so you will get new episodes as they come out and connect with us through reflectionsmusic.org. Find us on social media and uh, please share your reflections with us. just heard a podcast it's part of our reflections music series third season and available at kuaf.com and anywhere you find your podcast reflections music series is a project funded by the university of arkansas chancellor's grant for the humanities and performing arts initiative and sponsored by the j william fulbright college of arts and sciences the department of music kuaf 91.3 public radio and the women's giving circle and this conversation will continue into the spring semester with the release of Collective Grief, a public art installation concert and collaborative effort between Lopez and Bear, University of Arkansas students and faculty, and the Northwest Arkansas community. And we'll continue this podcast on tomorrow's Friday edition of Ozarks at Large. 
Welcome to today's Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. I'm Paul Gatling. Today we've got some audio from a longtime telecommunications executive and entrepreneur who has been given an assignment by the Arkansas legislature to help create a master plan for expanding broadband internet across the state. Also, some recommended reading for you over at nwabusinessjournal.com about the post-COVID recovery in the region's arts and entertainment industries. Audiences have returned to venues and area executives expect to build on in-person attendance growth. Still though, there are some challenges, including filling empty seats and job openings. That's a really nice article from reporter Jeff Delarosa with some insight from Brian Crown with the Walmart AMP, Martin Miller with Theater Squared, and Crystal Bridges Executive Director Rod Bigelow. That story appeared in the latest issue of the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, and it's now posted online at nwabusinessjournal.com. We've got more news after the break. You're listening to the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Support for the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report is provided by the Arkansas State Chamber of Commerce and Associated Industries of Arkansas. The Chamber's mission is to promote a pro-business, free enterprise agenda and prevent legislation, regulation, and rules that hinder business. ArkansasStateChamber.com Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield For more than 70 years, Arkansas Blue Cross and Blue Shield has used its knowledge and compassion to create healthcare solutions for individuals and businesses. More information at ArkansasBlueCross.com First Security is proud to be only in Arkansas. They offer smart solutions for personal and business banking, plus convenient services and community investment. First Security. Member FDIC. Equal housing lender. Lou McAllister is the CEO of Broadband Development Group, and he has been tasked by the Arkansas Legislature to help create a master plan for expanding broadband internet across the state of Arkansas. For a progress report on that project, McAllister sat down recently with Roby Brock. The work is going really well. Uh, we think we're, we're um, optimistically, we think we're ahead of schedule. Uh, we've been in about... Um, 29 counties so far physically uh, interviewing and meeting with um, stakeholders, uh, superintendents, students, teachers, small business owners, judges, mayors, Farm Bureau folks. Um, we have um, a few others scheduled before the end of the month. So by, by year end, we will have been in 34 counties. Um, so we feel pretty good about that. Um, and uh, the engineering work is going well. The data gathering is a massive data gathering exercise, Roby, as you might imagine. To, um, to create a really accurate map, give us a really good picture of where we are uh, as a state with broadband. Uh, and um, I feel pretty good about where we, uh, where we stand on that. All right, back up a little bit and let's talk about what, how we define broadband. Is there an internet speed that defines broadband? Yeah. Is there a penetration within the community that defines a community having broadband? What are some of those parameters? Sure. Uh, the FCC is is sort of our guide on uh, defining broadband internet access, and that's defined as 25 megabits per second as download speed. What you think about as you watch Netflix or uh, go to the, the internet on something, uh, upload speed is three megabits per second. 
you know, so sending emails or files or that sort of thing. So you hear people talk about 25 by three. That's what they're talking about. That's the minimum uh, definition of, out of the FCC for broadband service. All right. And how widespread does that have to be in a community for it to be considered a community has broadband? Is it one home? Is it uh, hundred <laughs> homes? I mean, what, what defines That's, that? There, there, therein lies a little bit of the debate. Um, providers report to the FCC on a, on a thing called a Form 477 where they serve areas. If one home in that area is served, then the area is served. There may be 10 or 12 other homes in that area, none of which have service. But as far as the FCC is concerned, as far as the ISP is concerned, the area is served. But that's 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 why we end up with inaccurate maps. That's why we end up with frustration and anger. That's why we that's why we exist, and why we're doing what we're doing. It's to find out where those gaps are and fill in those gaps and make sure that everyone um, has affordable broadband internet access. You mentioned this is a very data-centric uh, project that you're working on. Lots and lots of layers of data. I know right. you're taking some census data. Uh, you're overlapping that with a lot of other uh, data that you have in terms of what's been provided by telecoms and internet service providers. Um, right. w- tell me where we are kind of in that data collection process. I think you've gotten pretty far with some of it. And what kind of remains? We have gotten pretty far with a lot of it. There are 98,000 census blocks in Arkansas, and I don't, that's kind of a, a nerdy you know, term, I guess. But um, we are down to about the last 10% or so uh, of that. Uh, but we're gathering data from the, the providers themselves. We're, we're, we're gathering data from um, uh, other organizations. There are lots of organizations that have been surveying and gathering data over the years, and we're trying to uh, collect and collate, sift and sort all of that data, as well as doing our own primary research. But um, I'd say we're down to about the last uh, 10% of the data gathering of the census blocks themselves. And this is on an address-by-address basis. So we have, um, I don't know, a million and a half addresses or something in Arkansas. It's a lot, a lot of, lot of data together. And that's where boots on the ground comes in handy. Uh, Uh, (laughs) We have a lot of folks out there, right? So the legislature mentioned earlier this week that um, you guys have been doing some town hall meetings. You are going to do some more meetings uh, in the near future, particularly in those counties that you haven't uh, been to yet. You're assessing needs. You're, uh, I guess, assessing community interest or desires. What do you want from those meetings? What is the information that you're getting? And how do you package those findings in your final report? That's a great question. There are two two pieces of the research, right? One's quantitative data. You know, where do you live? What speed do you have? How much do you pay? Numbers, objective, quantitative data. The other data, though, is qualitative. How frustrated are you? How angry are you? What happens to your kids? What happens to your business? Um, What happens when you have fiber optic cable running across your yard or across your property, but you don't have Internet access? Why is that? So, um, you know, taking a cue from some, you know, some of our other friends, uh, big companies, uh, Arkansas-based companies who are pretty good at data gathering and analysis, we look at those two things, the quantitative part of that as well as the qualitative part. That's what these, that's what these, these community meetings are really about uh, more than anything else. Roby, uh, we can send a form out, a survey out, and people can give us quantitative data all day long. What we, what we like to do is stand there and listen and interview and talk and get feedback from people 
and find out things like the lady in the Dardanelle library who's looking for a job and filing her unemployment benefits because she's lost her internet service at home because the $30 a month bill that she thought she had really was a $300 a month bill. And she makes $20,000 a year. She can't afford, she can't afford that. And so it's devastating her credit and, and she's, she's trying to get a job. She's trying to, you know, just survive. And you don't get that by just looking at spreadsheets and databases uh, and, and analyzing data. You only get that when you're standing face to face with somebody and, and talking to them one-on-one. And so that's, that's, that's primarily why we're out in the communities. McAllister also cautioned that Arkansans need to be realistic about how much broadband penetration is possible for rural parts of the state. He noted that when rural telephone service was installed, a 96% rate was considered universal coverage. And that standard may also be necessary for broadband. Considering there are some extremely remote areas of Arkansas that will be difficult to connect. A final wrap-up on that project, McAllister said, is due in April of next year. You can find that entire interview with Roby Brock over on our sister website at talkbusiness.net. In other headlines, despite higher gas prices than a year ago, road trips will remain the top mode of travel during the holidays. According to the AAA, more than 100 million people are expected to travel in cars this season. While more than 6 million people travel by air, and 3 million take buses, trains, or cruises. Holiday travel is expected to rise overall by 34% compared with last year. And Georgia-based law firm Hall Booth Smith has hired longtime attorney Jason Hendren to lead its new office in Rogers. Hendren spent the past seven years working for Wright Lindsey Jennings in Rogers. And Haas Hall Academy is also hoping to expand... The Fayetteville-based charter school is seeking approval from the State Department of Education to open a Fort Smith campus. That would join existing campus locations in Bentonville, Fayetteville, Rogers, and Springdale. I'm Paul Gatling, and that's the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal Report. Until next time, thanks for listening. The musical Mean Girls, based on the Tina Fey movie of the same name, is on stage through Sunday at Walton Art Center. It's the story of a new girl, Katie, who's moved to town after growing up in Kenya, and how she becomes involved with and eventually leads a clique of popular and mean girls. Yesterday, we talked with two cast members, Eric Huffman and Mary-Kate Morrissey, who played Damien and Janice, two kids on the outside of the popular circles. Mary-Kate says performing the fast-moving modern musical is a blast. But especially on a weekday where where there's only one show, those shows are just fun because as fast as it goes in the story for the audience, that's as fast as it is on stage for us. And so you do your scene, you come off, you change into another costume, you're in the next scene moving the story along. Um, And then there's always, I mean, Eric and I are really close friends. Danny and I are really close friends. The company is just, it's like a really special company and that people are all really nice. So we like to have fun at work. So I would say that for the most part, it is equally fun for us to do as it is for you to watch. Damien, one of the things I love, it's a very, very modern musical, the set, the, the, the imagery behind you. But I love the fact, and I don't think this is giving anything away, the second act begins with something so traditional in musicals, and that's tap. 
It was beautiful. Yes. <laughs> uh, I think it's actually really cool to point out that the character Damien that I play is very much like a classic golden age musical theater song and dance man in the middle of this modern pop technical extravaganza. So to actually get to sit down and take like five minutes to do a real old fashioned quality tap number is such a gift. I love it. I grew up tapping my whole life. And when I first saw this show, I saw the show years ago, back before it went, even went to Broadway, when that tap number started, I was like, I thought, yep, this is what I want to do next with my life. <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought up that you had been tapping your whole life because you and, and, and the other dancers that are on the stage for that number are amazing. D- do you know, did any of your colleagues, cast, fellow actors have to learn to tap for this role? <laughs> Actually, um, kind of, yes. We have an incredible ensemble of dancers that just absolutely blow my mind every night but most of the show is very much like a modern hip-hop flavor to it which couldn't be more different than tap so a tap number for some of them was daunting they they don't do that kind of thing but they're so talented that it just wasn't even a problem (laughs) mary Kay, you brought up the the wardrobe changes and i think it's a testimony to the story and the actors that you don't really think about it when it's happening but my goodness, there's a lot of change in wardrobe during those two hours. There are so many costumes in the show. If you could see the backstage, it is just packed with gondolas of costumes and dressers running around trying to make sure someone has the right socks with the right sneakers. And every character has their own color story, which I think makes it feel really visually um, symbiotic. I think that's is Eric, is that right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Like visually symbiotic on stage, and that like you don't notice too much that like the clothes are changing. But <laughs> I mean, I have six different pairs of socks for a two and a half an hour show that are <laughs> knee socks that like they they opened a trash bag full of knee socks, and I just got to pick which ones I wanted to wear on that day, and I really made it hard for myself because I was like, I want them all. <laughs> <laughs> I know Damien and Janice are, are real characters, but there's also sort of this Greek chorus element to them, right? They are our guides along the way, especially at the beginning and toward the end. <laughs> yes, uh, they actually uh, framed that. The, the idea came from, in the movie, Katie narrates the whole thing, and she can't really do that in the show version because she's doing the scenes. We can't do like voiceover stuff that easily. So they came up with this idea that since Janice and Damien call themselves self-proclaimed outcasts from the social scene. We are kind of self-proclaimed outcasts from the actual stage show at times and literally step out and start talking to the audience about what's going on right now and helping roll the ball along, which I actually think is really fun to get to step in and out of the show like that. All right. I'm, I'm always amazed at some of the things that can happen on a stage, and this might be the smallest one, but at the very beginning you throw, I think it's a tambourine, Eric, to... to... Oh, no. And it's it's just so effortless. And I'm wondering, does that come effortlessly or is that something you have to to work on it as you begin rehearsals? Oh, my gosh. Don't laugh. MK. Um, I'm sorry. The tambourine no, fantastic. You were the first person to ever call that out. That is one of the scariest moments in the whole show for me. I have never played any kind of sport in my life. I cannot throw <laughs> that tambourine in a straight line every night. And poor Morgan, who catches it, is a solid 15 feet away from me. 
and tambourines can catch a nice air. They're yeah. like a little sail, so it can veer off to the side. But I have to do it super casually while singing. I've got like three seconds to do it. And it's in the first 30 seconds of the show, and I'm terrified every night. Eric Huffman and Mary Kay Morrissey are two of the actors in the national touring production of Mean Girls on stage at Walton Arts Center through Sunday. They spoke with us yesterday. This is Ozarks at Large. The Lunch Hour, a new monthly concert series taking place in the KUAF lobby and featuring local artists and restaurants, kicks off this Friday, December 17th, with music by Bang and lunch provided by Woodstone Pizza. Doors open at noon. The music begins at 1220. Space is limited. Registration and masks are required to attend. KUAF.com for more information. The Lunch Hour is sponsored by George's Majestic Lounge Happy Hour Concerts, a Fayetteville tradition for over 40 years, happening each Friday from 6 to 9 p.m. at 519 West Dixon. Theater Squared welcomes The Heart of Christmas with Broadway star and Arkansas native Rob Sutton as he weaves holiday memories with Christmas favorites and new classics backed by the studio band with cocktail service by the Commons Bar Cafe. Live on stage through December 26th, 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets and information. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and all of Madison County. Today's show, produced by Timothy Dennis inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors included Leah Uribe and Lee Wood, Michael Tilley with Talk, Business, and Politics. And the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal with Paul Gatling is produced by Stephanie Brock. It's part of our partnership as well with Talk, Business, and Politics. Our theme is titled First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks to you for your continued support of Ozarks Large and KUAF. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Kyle Callums.